Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 273. Today's big Bible question, how do we handle it when we are frustrated with God and He isn't answering our prayers? So a happy and blessed Friday to you, dear friends. Today, we're going to do something I think we've only done one other time in this podcast, if even then. We're going to have one focused Bible question for each of our four Bible passages today. Why do that? Well, each of our four Bible chapters today have something that's pretty important for us to discuss. So, that means no time for fancy intros or advertisements for Pepto-Bismol, so let's just jump right in with our primary focus question, or at least our first one, which is from Psalms 77. How do we handle it when we're frustrated with God and He doesn't seem to be answering our prayers? Now, that's a very honest question, and the type of question that, honestly, some Christians feel like it's almost a sin to even ask such a thing. Now, those Christians, it may have been a little while since they've read the Psalms, which are unflinchingly honest and contain doubts, laments, authentic expressions of frustration with God, and even like what we would call complaints. And you find all of that in our Psalm of the day, Psalm 77. So we're going to go ahead and read Psalm 77, then we're going to ponder the answer to our question. Psalm chapter 77, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. I think of God, I groan. I meditate, my spirit becomes weak. Selah. You have kept me from closing my eyes. I am troubled and cannot speak. I consider days of old, years long past. At night, I remember my music. I meditate in my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has his faithful love ceased forever? Is his promise at an end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Selah. So I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High is changed. I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. God, your way is holy. What God is great like God? You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The water saw you, God. The water saw you, and it trembled. Even the depths shook, the clouds poured down water, the storm clouds thundered, your arrows flashed back and forth, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind, lightning lit up the world, the earth shook and quaked, your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So, some hard questions to ask there. You see them in verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Like I said earlier, some Christians are kind of surprised that such questions are in the Bible, but the Bible meets that kind of thing heads head on. And I can relate to those questions because there have been many times in my life where I did feel, personally, God was slow in answering my prayers and slow in delivering me or a family member from trouble. Does that mean that God was ignoring me, or does it mean he was in fact being slow to react? Of course not. 
Just because I feel like I was being neglected does not make it so. As we've discussed many times, sometimes we go through trials for good purposes, and sometimes we go through trials for purposes we can't even begin to figure out, but the pattern of the Bible shows us very clearly that God often does not rescue his people immediately from trouble, but at the proper time from his perspective. Now, of course, that's frustrating to us, maybe, but I trust his wisdom and timing. At least, I should trust his wisdom and timing. I'm just like the psalmist. I struggle with that sometimes. I bet you do, too. But again, we shouldn't be surprised that that happens because we see that pattern all through the Bible. So how does this psalmist get past this place of frustration? Well, we see the beginnings of the answer in verses 3 through 5. He says, I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. He's beginning to think about what's in the past and how God moves. And he comes back to that theme in verses 11 and 12, where he says, I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. And of those verses, Spurgeon says, What God did with others of his people in their times of trouble, how he rescued them, the splendor of his power in the ages long since gone, these are among the things which the psalmist considered. It is well sometimes to live in the past. If the present seems to be like a fire that has gone out, snatch a live coal from the altars of the past and set the fuel alight again. In other words, it's good for us when we're going through times of trouble to remember in the past how God has rescued us from times of trouble previously, and also how he has delivered his people over and over and over again. We forget we need reminders. Now, let's go to our 2 Samuel 21 passage. Now, of course, I know the burning question in your mind, is somebody going to die violently today in 2 Samuel? And the answer is, of course they are. In fact, those deaths form the basis for our Second Samuel Bible question. Buckle your seatbelts, lower your blast shields, and plug the ears of your little ones, because this passage is rated TVMA for violence. Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. During David's reign, there was a famine for three successive years, so David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is due to Saul and to his bloody family because he killed the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were not Israelites, but rather a remnant of the Amorites. The Israelites had taken an oath concerning them, but Saul tried to kill them in his zeal for the Israelites in Judah. So David summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. He asked the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? How can I make atonement so that you will bring a blessing on the Lord's inheritance? And the Gibeonites said to him, We are not asking for silver or gold from Saul or his family, and we cannot put anyone to death in Israel. Whatever you say, I will do for you, David said. And they replied to the king, As for the man who annihilated us and plotted to destroy us so we would not exist within the whole territory of Israel, let seven of his male descendants be handed over to us so we may hang them in the presence of the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen. The king answered, I will hand them over. David spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between David and Jonathan, Saul's son. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, who were the two sons of uh, whom Rizpah, daughter of Aya, had borne to Saul, and the five sons whom Merab, daughter of Saul, had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai the Mehelathite, and handed them over to the Gibeonites. 
They hanged them on the hill in the presence of the Lord. The seven of them died together. They were executed in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Rizpah, Ayah's daughter, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain poured down from heaven on the bodies. She kept the birds of the sky from them by day and the wild animals by night. When it was reported to David what Saul's concubine, Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, had done, he went and got the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen them from the public square of Beth-shan, where the Philistines had hung the bodies the day the Philistines killed Saul at Gilboa. David had the bones brought there. They gathered up the bones of Saul's family who had been hanged and buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan at Zelah in the land of Benjamin in the tomb of Saul's father Kish. They did everything the king commanded. After this, God was receptive to prayer for the land. The Philistines again waged war against Israel. David went down with his soldiers and they fought the Philistines, but David became exhausted. Then Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giant, whose bronze spear, spear weighed about eight pounds and who wore new armor, intended to kill David, but Abishai, son of Zariah, came to his aid, struck the Philistine, and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You must never go out again with us to battle. Well, you must not extinguish the lamp of Israel. After this, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibachai the Hushathite killed Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giant. Once again, there was battle with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath of Gath. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. At Gath, there was still another battle. A huge man was there with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all. He too was descended from the giant. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of David's brother Shammai, killed him. These four were descended from the giant in Gath and were killed by David and his soldiers. Now, this is not our focus question for the passage, but you might be asking the question, wait a minute, Elhanan, son of Jair, Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath of Gath? I thought David did. Well, I think the answer to that question is very simple. This is the probably, most likely, the son of Goliath of Gath. In other words, we would say Goliath Jr., but they didn't really say that at the time. In the very same way that Ken Griffey Sr., the baseball player who played for the Reds, and Ken Griffey Jr., the baseball player who played for the Mariners, were two different people, Goliath of Gath and Goliath of Gath were also two different people, and they were separated this time in the reign of David was years, probably decades, maybe even several decades after David, prior to being king, had killed Goliath. So very likely, this Goliath of Gath was the son, and the Bible just doesn't, at the time, they didn't say junior and things like that. They would say uh, Goliath ben Goliath, the, you know, Goliath, the son of Goliath, or something along those lines. Anyway, back to our focus question for this passage. Was David right, morally speaking, to offer up the descendants of Paul I mean, the descendants of Saul to pay for the crimes of Saul against the Gibeonites. Now, this is an important question because apparently what Saul was trying to do was engage in genocide against the Gibeonites. He was trying to kill all of them. And this was against what God had said because the Israelites had sworn, uh, it was under deception, but they had sworn to protect the Gibeonites. And Saul violated that oath and he tried to stamp all of them out. So genocide is the most serious of crimes. 
It's 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 the most horrible thing you can do, pretty much. But was it right to hang publicly Saul's descendants for Saul's crimes? Well, I believe the very clear Bible answer is absolutely not. And I base this on Ezekiel 18, 20 through 23, which if you remember, we just read a couple of days ago. Uh, well, maybe it's been uh, maybe a week ago or so. Uh, verse 20 says, the person who sins is the one who will die. A son won't suffer punishment due to the father's iniquity, and a father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. But if the wicked person turns from all the sins he commits and keeps all my statutes and does what is just as right and just and right, he will certainly live. He will not die. None of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. He will live because of the righteousness he has practiced. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? So should David have caused the grandchildren of Saul to publicly and brutally pay for his sins? No, not at all. God's principle, in contrast with ancient Near Eastern ethics of the time, was that the soul who sins is the one who will die. And in the ancient Near East uh, ethics, the family of the one who sins is the one who dies. Now, this, of course, brings up an important question. Are all of the things done by biblical heroes in the Bible the right thing to do? Of course not. The Bible is true in all that it affirms, but there is only one sinless person in the Bible, and that is Jesus. Now, I realize it's a bit of a sticky wicket that God, uh, the famine that God had sent, relented after this. Um, I don't know quite what to do with that information, but I will say my conclusion is that something should have been done to bring about justice for the Gibeonites. And I'm not sure what that something should have been, given that Saul was dead. But I suspect the payment for the murders of those Gibeonite people that the Israelites had sworn to protect could have been paid by something other than the deaths of people who weren't responsible for those murders. Our next passage is Ezekiel 28, a most fascinating passage. Now let's read it, but I want to ask you a question as we do. The passage begins by talking about the human king of Tyre, but is the whole passage about the human king of Tyre? Well, I don't believe so. Let's see what you think. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the Lord God says, your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seats of gods in the heart of the sea. Yet you are a man and not a God. Though you have regarded your heart as that of a God, yes, you are wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired wealth for yourself. You have acquired gold and silver for your treasures. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth, but your heart has become proud because of your wealth. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Because you regard your heart as that of a God, I am about to bring strangers against you, ruthless men from the nations. They will draw their swords against your magnificent wisdom and will pierce your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the sea. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who slay you? Yet you will be only a man, not a God, in the hands of those who kill you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of strangers. For I have spoken, 
This is the declaration of the Lord God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord God says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground. I made you a spectacle before kings. You profaned your sanctuaries by the magnitude of your iniquities in your dishonest trade. So I made fire come from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. All those who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become an object of horror and will never exist again. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, face Sidon and prophesy against it. You are to say, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against you, Sidon, and I will display my glory within you. They will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments against her and demonstrate my holiness through her. I will send a plague against her and bloodshed in her streets. The slain will fall within her while the sword is against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The house of Israel will no longer be hurt by prickly briars or painful thorns from all their neighbors who treat them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. This is what the Lord God says. When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples where they are scattered, I will demonstrate my holiness through them in the sight of the nations, and they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there securely, build houses, and plant vineyards. They will live securely when I execute judgments against all their neighbors who treat them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. So, I don't believe verses 11 through 18 are about a human. Let me give you some reasons why. Because God says that this individual was the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. They were in Eden, the garden of God. They were an anointed guardian cherub, verse 14. They were on the holy mountain of God. They walked among the fiery stones. They were blameless in their ways. They were expelled from the mountain of God. They had become proud because of their beauty. They were cast down to the ground. I find all of those descriptions to not really be about a human because humans are not perfect in beauty or the seal of perfection. Humans were not, well, there was two humans in the Garden of Eden, and um, this is not talking about Adam or Eve. I can think of one other being in the Garden of Eden, in that Eden, and that was, of course, Satan. Um, humans are not anointed guardian cherubs, uh, which is a type of heavenly being that guard the throne of God. Uh, you might think of, uh, the kind of the baby flying sort of, uh, uh, Cupid type being when I say cherub, but in the Bible, cherubim are terrifyingly powerful 
and not angels, but heavenly type beings. Well, I think this passage is metaphorically speaking of not the, I'm just talking about verses 11 through 19 is metaphorically speaking, not of the fall of the human king of Tyre. The previous part of this chapter is about him. I believe this is about the fall of Satan. Now, I will admit that verses 18 and 19 don't fully line up with that, represent a slight flaw in my argument, unless verses 18 and 19 are talking about the future ruin of Satan, and that's my best guess, that's what they are. Now, that said, if this passage is about the fall of Satan, what do we learn? Well, we learn that he was perfect, that he was perfectly beautiful, that he was in the Garden of Eden, we already knew that, He is or was a cherubim, very powerful, a guardian cherubim. He lived on the mountain of God and he walked among the fiery stones, which is, uh, as we've talked about before, we don't think of heaven as a place with fiery stones all throughout it. But as it says it twice in this passage and many other, other places in the Old Testament, heaven is a place where God lives now is a place with lots of fiery stones in it. And that's fascinating. So, I think this passage is about Satan, and it even says he was thrown down to the ground, made a spectacle before kings. That's pretty fascinating. You can take that or leave it. The Bible is uh, being a little vague there, um, but I think it's giving us a glimpse of a spiritual reality through a glass darkly, as 1 Corinthians 13 would say. Our final passage is Galatians chapter 1, and honestly, I'm pumped that we're going to be reading through Galatians together, because I'm always excited to talk about the gospel or the good news of Jesus. So here's our final question. If somebody powerful, even a supernatural being, teaches a way of salvation that contradicts what the Bible says or adds to what the Bible says, should we believe it? Well, yeah, I know it's a softball question, but let's go read Galatians 1 anyway and think about it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age According to the will of our God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God, or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. 
Then, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him fifteen days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except uh, James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I'm not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remain personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So, what should we do if somebody powerful, even a supernatural being, teaches a way of salvation that contradicts what the Bible says? Well, Paul says, verse 8 of this passage, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, a curse be on him. So, question for you. Can you think of any religions with different gospels, different good newses, different ways of salvation that with the, than what the Bible teaches that were thought to have been initiated by angels? Because I can think of a few, several. And all of them do not follow the biblical pattern of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. Now, there's many gospels out there, or religions out there, some of them, like Mormonism, that are angel-based, which mix good works into the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith, not by works. As we will find out in the next few chapters of Galatians, adding works to faith is a dangerous theological activity. I will close with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says, You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift not from works so that no one can boast. Well, friends, may we walk in the humility that comes from being people not saved by our goodness or by our works or by our efforts, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise his name. Good day to you and Godspeed.